Hello and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. I'm Mark Gunger, the pastor here at Celebration Church. I'm on the road today, so those of you who are used to hearing me in person are going to hear the message via video. Those who normally hear me via video, you don't care anyway, so this is just normal for you. The great thing is that the Word of God, whether in person, whether on paper, whether on video, whatever, it always works, it's always alive, it's always powerful. Now we are uh, doing our uh, study of 1 Timothy. Here's a young guy that the Apostle Paul had worked closely with. And he's writing Timothy and encouraging him uh, on how to work with the churches, what his responsibilities were, what to preach, what to watch out for, uh, what not to talk about, that kind of stuff. Um, how to pick leaders in the church. We just finished that whole study on uh, you know, what an elder should be like, what a deacon should be like, that sort of thing. And uh, we're going to pick it up at uh, verse 14 of chapter 3. We're going verse by verse through the book of 1 Timothy. And, uh, and reflecting on it. So, picking it up at verse 14. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. So, he is uh, just underscoring to him the purpose of his writing. This is so you know what to do. Uh, conduct yourself in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. And then he does this interesting little thing. He He says, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. And then he breaks into this prose, if you will. It's, uh, now we're not quite sure if he was just going through some series of doctrine or uh, the way uh, this translation has the NIV, it breaks it into, uh, you know, like a little poem or something. We don't know if it was a poem or perhaps a hymn that they sang uh, uh, of this thing or maybe something that they had all recited together, but that's kind of the way it's laid out. And this is what he says. Um, He appeared in a body, talking about Jesus, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up into glory. Again, was this a hymn? Was this something they recited? We don't know. What is interesting, though, and uh, I've been speaking with my brother Eddie about this uh, very thing, is that this may have been the kind of thing that they did either sing or recite together as believers, reinforcing the basic tenements of Christianity, that he appeared in the body. Jesus, there, there was teachings going around that, uh, at that time that said, well, Jesus really wasn't physical, he was spiritual. There was you know, some kind of metaphysical thing, and they'd get off into some weird doctrine. No, 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 he was born of the Virgin Mary. He was in a physical body, and uh, he was vindicated by the Spirit, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. He was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. Now, uh, the reason why I've been talking with, with Ed about this thing is, uh, as, as pastors uh, uh, in the kingdom of God here, uh, one of the th- concerns that we have, particularly in our nation today, is that um, if you look at the studies and the statistics that are being done right now, uh, it's, it's kind of disturbing, kind of is, is a soft version. It's very disturbing, actually, when you look at what's happening with our young people today. Uh, they are not really... Grow or taking their faith with them once they leave the church. In fact, statistically, we're doing a horrid job. If you were to look at the statistics, some are as high as 80% of evangelical kids 
Okay, that's Bible-believing churches, churches like ours. Teach the Bible, you know, do all the things that we do. Uh, almost 80% in some studies, by the time they leave high school and by the first or second year of college, have completely fallen away from their faith. Uh, my brother, the last time we were together, said, you know, uh, they're saying that, uh, again, as much as 80% of them, depending on the studies, uh, don't believe in the virgin birth. Don't believe uh, Jesus truly rose again from the dead. Don't, they question all the basic fundamentals of, of Christianity. And it's something that we need to be alarmed about. Now, there's lots of different reasons for this. I personally feel that one of the strongest uh, uh, reasons that our kids are winding up shipwrecked in their faith is because we're not living this stuff at home. It's uh, it's kind of hard to sell to your kids that you love Jesus but hate dad. It's hard to say that, you know, yeah, Jesus is real important to me, but I can't stand my wife and uh, I can't live with your mother, but I still love you anyway. All this stuff that we all have to deal with in broken homes and stuff. Uh, and I understand the circumstances involved and we don't condemn people. It's not about that. But I'm telling you, we're living in a fantasy world if we think that's not negatively affecting our children. And it is dramatically so. And those that come from those situations by and large are the ones that are leaving their faith. So that's one of the, I think, one of the main reasons. But another thing I think that we've done as, as people of faith is we've done a, in evangelical churches particularly I think we've done a really poor job of really getting the basics into our kids the basic fundamental truths and, uh, and you can tell that because a lot of adults even today don't have the basic fundamentals stop and think about it some of you guys that are my age and, and, and uh, older or not too far from there I mean most of us even if you were pretty much a heathen growing up uh, almost all of us had some form of religious training you know we had to go to you know Catholic uh, classes or Lutheran classes or something where we, we were trained in the basic ten uh, uh, tenements of truth in Christianity. Doesn't mean we lived it. I didn't live it. But at least I understood it. And I got it. Uh, and and a huge percentage of adults from my generation and older all had these teachings growing up as children. Well now today that percentage is becoming smaller and smaller and smaller to where people are growing up in their faith and they don't know jack squat about Christianity. Jack squat about the, the basic truths of, of, of Christianity, I'm sp- <laughs> spilling my water here, you can't see that, I don't think, anyway. But uh, here's an example, I think I've shared this story before. Uh, a couple of years ago, Deb and I were on a cruise, and uh, you know, you come into these cruise ports, and they've got, you know, all these stores and stuff, they're just designed to, you know, trap people and get them in to try and buy stuff. One of the big things is jewelry, there's jewelry everywhere, I can't imagine people needing or wanting as much jewelry as they uh, try and sell you on these cruises. But, uh, you know, I'm walking with my wife and she likes to shop and gawk at stuff. And I don't, but I'm trying to be nice. So I, I come along and I'm standing there. She's looking at stuff. And there's this young couple looking at uh, some crosses. And, oh, that's a pretty cross. And she says, Oh, look at that. Oh, that's beautiful. And that's, and then they came to one which was a crucifix. Now, uh, those of you particularly raised Catholic should know the difference between a crucifix and a cross. A cross is just a cross. A crucifix is with Jesus on the cross. Okay? And anyway, so she's saying, oh, that's, oh, I love that one. Oh, that's pretty. And then pointed to a crucifix and she says, who's that? Who's on there? I mean... 
We were stunned to hear anyone say something like that. I mean, here is a young girl in her early 20s who had no... I don't know what she thought she was looking at with these crosses. Apparently to her, she just thought it was you know, a pretty piece of jewelry. Had no connection between the cross and Jesus Christ. Had no connection between the cross and Christianity. No connection between the cross and redemption. I mean, that is amazing. This is the generation that is growing up today without uh, uh, religious teaching um, and, uh, and, and it's really a matter of concern. And, and here's the other thing that I'm a little bit concerned about, again, talking with my brother, is, uh, you know, I wonder if, if we're really doing a job getting those basic truths into these kids. Because, again, we're in an evangelical church, and the evangelical churches are doing a very poor job of getting these truths across to their kids. Again, a year or two into college, they don't believe half the stuff that we thought that they believed, you know. Part of it is that we assume they believe it. We didn't really teach it all that much. We'd refer to it from time to time. Uh, One of the challenges, we need to be careful as we uh, uh, have our programs for our young people and our youth and stuff uh, in our churches. And they're wonderful programs. And and they're great and they're high energy and they're fun. But we got to be careful that we don't just make it about fun and stay so Jesus light that by the time our kids graduate from school, they don't get it. And they don't understand it. So we're actually uh, uh, working right now on trying to re-examine how we're presenting the gospel to our kids. I've been talking to Pastor Keith and, and our uh, uh, leadership team about, you know, we need to make sure that we're really getting this stuff into them. And uh, uh, Ed told me, he says, the one thing that they've started doing at their church in Tulsa is they've been starting to recite every Sunday the Apostles' Creed. I don't know how many of you remember that, but, you know, where you say, I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin Mary, was crucified, died and was buried, on the third day raised again from the dead. It's that Apostles' Creed where you quote this basic series of fundamental Christian beliefs, um, you know, over and over and over again. Now, one of the reasons that evangelical churches don't like doing those things, you know, apostles' creeds, or a lot of them don't like doing the Lord's Prayer every Sunday and, and stuff like that, 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 that we've picked up on some of these things, is because they're, they're so, they've been so trying to pull away from automaton worship, you know. Uh, and, and we've all been part of that. You go to churches where everybody just recites everything. They kneel, they stand, they sit down, they stand. It doesn't mean anything. So I think in our effort to get into meaningful worship, that we've overdone it a bit. We've we've gotten to where we don't want to recite certain things that are really positives. And as I was talking to Ed, I thought, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I know in my life that when I'm witnessing to someone and I'm trying to share the gospel with people... uh, the people that are really the easiest for me to share the gospel with are a lot of the people who went through churches like that because they don't doubt that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They understand God created the heaven and earth. They understand and believe in the virgin birth, a resurrection of the dead. Why? Because every time they went to church their entire lives, they got up and said, I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, born of a virgin Mary. You know, all these things that they were reciting over and over and over again got into them. They may not be living it. In fact, a lot of them don't live it. But at least they have that fundamental understanding, believing in the basic tenets of Christianity. And uh, again, we've just been talking about it and stuff. But I'm... I'm, uh, 
becoming very inclined to maybe start adding that to our worship service. And, and I'll be talking about it. If we go that direction, I'm pretty sure we will be teaching it to the general congregation. So you'll be hearing the spiel again. But why it's important to take that very simple little thing, just as maybe before we do our corporate prayer, where we recite together our profession of faith. This is who we are. This is what we believe in. Um, oftentimes I have people come up to me who are visiting and they'll ask me afterwards, oh, what is it that you guys believe? Uh, and then say, well, you know, we have it in our bulletin or on our website or try to explain to it. And I thought, you know, maybe this is something that when people come, they should be able to hear what it is that we believe. These are the basics that we believe. It's virtually the same basics that all Christians believe. And you've heard me teach that there's a difference between what we believe and what we think. There are some fundamental things that we believe uh, that is non-negotiable. Then there's lots of things that I teach and I, I, I believe, think, believe. You know, I think God's saying this or I think the Bible's saying that. But we don't get into big fights about it. We don't take these hard, mean stands. And we don't try to get everybody thinking the same like some weird cult or something like that. Why? Because there's lots of room for things that people think about faith. Uh, there's some things that people practice in faith that encourages their faith uh, that uh, others don't. And uh, we don't try to get everybody thinking the same. Even me and my brother Eddie, we disagree about uh, things. You know, Ed just wrote a book not too long ago. Uh, just released, actually. You haven't heard me talk about it because I'm not a fan on the concept. But it's called The Vow. And Eddie was wrote this book and, you know, of course, he's a brilliant writer on how he believes that Christians, you know, should make vows. These are good things. You know, when you vow to God, you're going to do something. And, and from his viewpoint, this empowers his faith. And others who listen to that and go, yeah, this is great. Personally, I think he's wrong. <laughs> and we've had hours of wrestling this doctrine uh, to the ground and back. And I'd throw stuff at him. He'd throw stuff at me intellectually and sometimes almost physically as we rattle these things through. Uh, I think Jesus taught us pretty clearly that you shouldn't make vows. He said, you've heard in the uh, Old Testament, pay your vows to God. I say to you, don't swear at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. James said the same thing. I think the Bible's pretty clear. You don't do it. And he says, that's not what Jesus was saying. What he was saying was blah, 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 blah. So he thinks this way. Boom. We disagree. So what? No big deal. If you think that's a great path for you, go get his book. Have a great time. It'll be fabulous. I'm sure you'll be blessed. I can't get behind it because I don't agree with it. I don't approach my Christianity that way. But we still love each other. We're still part of the same kingdom of God. We're still part of, you know, he speaks into our church fellowship all the time. Those are the stuff that we kind of think about. But the fundamental basic stuff that we all believe, the, the trinity of God, of salvation, the resurrection of the dead, someday there's going to be a judgment day. Jesus is going to come back someday. All of these fundamental things that are really contained in this Apostles' Creed, I'm thinking we ought to really make this as part of our worship service. Again, just before we pray as a corporate group, we all stand together, we reaffirm these things, and if nothing else... It will get into our teens and our young people. The concepts, the basics of Christianity. Hearing them over and over again. Like Paul writing here in his little thing. These basic truths. Why, why would even the early church do these things? To get it into people's heads. To re rehearse these things over and over again. So that at least these are not questioned 
in our minds. So, uh, again, I'll be sharing this with the general congregation as I try and let them know why I want to start adding this as part of our worship. It's not about being religious and it's not about becoming automatons and just reciting stuff for the sake of reciting stuff. Uh, You know, clearly that's wrong, but it doesn't mean you can't recite stuff. It just means when you do it, mean it. So, that's what we're going to start doing and, and certainly the kind of thing that Paul was just rehearsing here when he went through some of these basic truths with Timothy. Um, Okay, so picking it up now at chapter 4, keeping in mind that these chapters don't really exist. Those chapters were added later, and the verse numbers were added later, just so we could find where to look in the Bible. But when he sat down, he just wrote this stuff. He wasn't writing in chapters. So he he, he quotes this hymn or this recital, whatever thing. And then he goes on to say, Now the Spirit clearly says... That in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Yeesh. Now such teachings come through hypocritical liars. What is a hypocritical liar? Someone who knows better. (laughs) You know, they say one thing and live another. Uh, There were people uh, back then, even in the early, earliest days of the church, who saw Christianity as a way to get gain in life. You know, get get status in life. Get people to follow after you. To become a teacher and a leader. And every, I, I, Come listen to me. And I think this and I think that. And some people would uh, uh, use it as a way to financial gain and stuff. Uh, this is the early church. Man, it's, I think it's a lot worse today. There are people who totally uh, approach Christianity as a way to the you know, quick trip to the bank, which is, is just really out of line as far as I believe. And we'll certainly see that as Paul talks a little bit later to Timothy. But these are people who know better and they, they don't live what they preach anyway. They're hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. What does that mean? These are people who do stuff wrong and they just keep doing it over and over and over and over again. And it's like they take their conscience and they sear it with a hot iron. Why? So it loses its sensitivity. So that it becomes burned and jaded and hard and it no longer speaks to them anymore. Um, This is something a lot of people do and you need to be careful about this. You know, I talk a lot about different things that we struggle with and some of the sins, and there's no greater sin, you've heard me talk about this a lot, that we struggle with in our overly sexed culture today than sexual sin. And people, they sin sexually and they do things that are wrong and they know they're wrong and their conscience feels bad. Uh, But they just keep doing it over and over and over and over again until their conscience doesn't make them feel bad anymore. Then they think it's okay. Um... I've heard people talking to uh, young people, you know, saying, you know, you don't have to feel bad about doing that sin, and that sex is okay, and this is okay, and they're constantly trying to help them get past their consciences that are screaming at them, saying, hey, there's something wrong with this. This isn't right. I don't know what it is, but something's not right about this, but we live in this world of people who've already burned their conscience over, trying to encourage other young people and other people, now go ahead, it's okay, there's no problem, you can do it, it's fine, everybody does it, everybody does it. What is it? That is our culture screaming at our young people, and some of you, just to keep doing it, take your iron out and burn that conscience sear it so it gets quiet so it frees you to sin with uh without hindrance in any way shape or form 
Be careful about those kinds of things. God gave us a conscience for a reason. And certainly when you get the word of God in you and your conscience actually becomes uh, uh, more developed uh, based on truth. All the more reason you need that. This is how God will speak to us and the Holy Spirit can speak into your life. Don't just keep doing things that are wrong uh, enough that your those the conscience quits yelling at you. Um, because it's just it's just a path to destruction. Once you've shut that off so God can't speak to you, then where are you at? You know? Uh, you're doomed. Uh, one of the teachings that they would have that he's referring to, he says they these guys they forbid people to marry and order that they and order them to abstain from certain foods. Now why what what is he talking about? Now there was a doctrine going along at this time, and it's really been a, a line of thought that people have carried for centuries, probably before and certainly after, even to this day. But there's this thinking that anything pleasurable must be sinful, and if the more pleasure it is, the greater the sin must be as a result. You, you hear that in advertising today. You know, chocolate that's so good, it's sinfully good. Or, or something like that. You know, something that's so good, it's got to be sinful. Now, you know, these are just advertising slogans that people maybe smile at. But there's actually, a, where does that come from? It comes from a line of thought that thinks, you know, if anything is good, it has to be sinful. So these guys were into this thinking, well if that's the case then you you should never marry because sex is pleasurable and it's sinful and certain foods you shouldn't eat. Why? Because if it tastes too good then it's sinful. Um, you know, I was reading uh, some years ago the uh, uh, writings of uh, John Wesley who started the Methodist Church. Really strict guy. And uh, I almost think that guy thought like this. I mean, he he was against too much spice on food. Uh, you know, there, there, there has always been this think uh, thinking in uh, Christianity that, you know, uh, if, if it's too enjoyable, you, you shouldn't do it. Which kind of gave Christianity this Puritan, you know, Puritan negative uh, thing that a lot of the world is kicked against. One of the reasons why uh, people reject Christianity is this over-extreme idea that anything pleasurable must be sinful and it doesn't advance the kingdom of God in, in, in any way and it just adds a lot of uh, guilt on people. This is ridiculous. God created these things. God created your body to respond in certain ways. God made sex. God is not against sex. People hear me talk about, you know, the whole sex thing. I'm not against sex. Sign me up, man. I'm a big fan. I think it's fabulous. And God designed all of this stuff, and it's great. Just do it right. Okay? You do it wrong, it complicates things, and it wrecks and destroys people's lives. Do it right, and it's fabulous, and it holds people together. Uh, I like to eat a little bit too much, quite frankly. But uh, just because food tastes great or something like that doesn't mean that it's sinful. This is ridiculous. Why would God create uh, our our bodies and, and uh, you know our taste buds and all these different things, our sensations, and then turn around and hammer us? For enjoying them. It doesn't make any sense. The truth of the matter is it's okay to do these things. Just do them right. Um, he says here, uh, 
you know, orders some people to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. These things were created by God. God is not against you having a great time. God is not against you enjoying life, being blessed. Just because chocolate tastes really good doesn't mean it's sinful. That's ridiculous. That makes us think that God is some kind of a tyrant. The minute you start enjoying something too much, boom, he's going to hammer you. That's not the right picture of God. God created these things to be received with thanksgiving. Again, particularly in the sexual area, just do it right and enjoy your little brains out. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Just be thankful. God bless my food. Thank you for my life. Thank you for these blessings that I enjoy in my life. Um, He goes on, he says, if you point these things out to the brothers, again, he's writing to Timothy, he's a young preacher, encouraging him how to teach, how to lead the church, how to put things in order. If you point these things out, as he's going through here, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith, and of the good teaching that you have followed. Then he goes on, continuing his instruction. Uh, He says, don't have anything to do with godless godless myths and old wives' tales. Um, You know, encouraging him, don't... You know, he, he talks about people who have itching ears. You know, there's there's something fun about people who want to hear the latest new doctrine or the, the weirdest new twist on spirituality or, or maybe this is true or, or maybe that's true. And They chase these goofball things. He say, man, don't be chasing stuff. Don't be going after these myths, old wives' tales he called, these different things. Man, stay founded in what we know, in the truth. Um, I've... Uh, Often said that, you know, people who are always looking for some for some new revelation in Christianity, you, you know, these people, it's like they're bored with Jesus. You know that like this isn't enough. This wonderful thing of faith that we have, there's got to be something more. And 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 they they they're they're finding some new buzz or twist or spin or something that's going to make. Christianity more meaningful. I don't think in those terms. I love the revelation that we have. I'm still blown away by the simplest revelation that Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me. So I'm I'm still jazzed over that. I'm jazzed over the fact that God likes me. I'm, I'm thrilled that he even tolerates me, much less loves me. Man, this is fabulous stuff. I love this relationship with God. I love what God has done. I love what the Bible teaches. On Sunday, I talked about, you know, how to know the will of God and how basic it is. Do this. Don't do that. Do this. It's all laid out there for us. But a lot of people, they get, I don't, I don't want this. I, I want something sexy. I want something jazzy. I want something ooh out there. You know, man, watch out for that kind of stuff. Be content with Jesus, man. i I think this thing rocks. I, this is fabulous. Um, he says, so don't do all this stuff. And he says, rather, train yourself to be godly. I love that phrase. Train yourself to be godly. Why is that significant? Because we live in a culture today that people don't really want to train themselves for anything. They think 
Stuff should just happen for them. And it's just the world that we live in. And thank God we live in the greatest country on earth. And we have so many wonderful blessings and freedoms and opportunities here. But on the other hand, you've just got to be careful in this culture that we live in. We live in a very self-centered, narcissistic culture. Where it's all about me and everything's me. And there's this entitlement uh, that we have today. We are entitled to... Always be happy and never be disturbed in any way, shape, or form. Um, That's why people get all uh, riled up about all this political correctness today. You can't say certain words. You can't say certain things. You can't uh, put a nativity or something on public property. Why? Because I have the right never to feel bad. I have the right never to be insulted. I have the right not to be offended. And people think in those terms, this is the culture that we live in. And there's this entitlement, you know, that everything should be good and I shouldn't even have to hear something that would remotely make me upset. And sadly, that thinking has crept into the church and we have Christians today that walk around, well, I'm offended by this pastor and pastor, that offends me and this offends me and of course we don't tolerate that in this church I've everywhere I go in America I preach against that thinking I think that we should have a rule in the church that if someone ever says they're offended you ought to reach out and slap them in the face keep slapping them until they quit saying they're offended that's a bunch of nonsense when the Bible talks about offense it's not talking about stuff you don't like it's talking about making you fall away from Christ fall away from your faith that's offense The Bible says, perfect peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. What does that say to you, miss? I was offended. Every time a Christian says he's offended or she's offended, they're saying, I don't love this. I don't love the word of God. Because that's what it says in Psalms. Don't you say you're offended going around. and It's part of this self-centered, narcissistic thinking that I have the right never to be uncomfortable. I have the right not to have something occur that I do not like or do not appreciate. You know, I, I didn't like that music, Pastor. I, I, it's not what I expect when I come to church. Pastor, I don't think, I didn't like the way that person uh, shared at the pulpit. Oh, I shouldn't have to have that. I come here and I expect certain blessings and certain, you need to hush up. You come to this church saying, oh, I expect stuff. The only thing you should expect is that God will move in your life. The only thing you should expect is to be encouraged and challenged. The only thing you should expect, the only right you should have here, is the right to serve other people and give and sacrifice into the kingdom of God. That's the right you have coming into this place. This isn't about you being happy with uh, the music being presented uh, the way that you always like, or the worship always being a certain way that you like, or every service being packaged in a way that you approve of. Goodness gracious, people. We need to stop that kind of thinking and realize that we don't always have to have everything the way that we want it. Now, going back to this idea, the problem today is people think that they have entitlement. Things, they're entitled to stuff. They, they, they think things should just come to them. They hear about someone making a lot of money and they're envious of those people. You know, we're just getting ready to go full bore into our, our next political season here this year all Nut jobs are out there trying to get us to vote for them. And, you know, one of the cards they like to play is this class envy. You know, it's not right that the rich have more than the poor. It's not right that someone have. Well, well, if somebody got it immorally or illegally, I would agree with you. But 
There's a reason why some people have more money than other people. They've earned it. They worked for it. They went to school, busted their butts for eight, ten years, some of these people, to get the degrees and to go into fields where they can highly succeed. There is a reason they're making more money. Just because someone has something more than you doesn't make them evil. But we have this thinking, you know, well, they got it and they shouldn't have it. I ought to have it because I'm an American and everybody should have the same thing. It's like... Or some gigantic socialist state. This is ridiculous. Don't get caught up into this nonsense. There's people, you know, they're successful in life. And people, wow, you know, that's... They were just lucky. They weren't just lucky. They worked hard for it. People who envy people because they have a successful business. You know? They worked hard for that business. Goodness gracious, I've been in business. It's like a trip to hell. It's You have no idea. Those of you who are entrepreneurs are what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Even those of you who are successful, most of you are successful in spite of yourself. I mean, a lot of you guys have failure after failure after failure. Some of the most successful people in the world are some of the ones who fail the most miserably. Went through hell financially and risking everything. And then finally, finally they pulled it out and, and they're successful today. It didn't just happen for them. Um, um, there's exceptions. I'm sure there's some people who stumbled into success. But that's the exception. That's not the rule. Most people are successful. Most people have what they have today because they earn it. They get there on purpose. Um, you know, some people see you know professional athletes. And, and they envy them. Say, well, why should they make so much money? And you know, they're just lucky that they, they, they are able to do that for a living. Now, granted, they might have an advantage to start with because they're big, strong guys. But I know lots of big, strong guys who are not professional athletes. They don't do anything like that. Why? Because they didn't pay the price. These guys who do this have worked forever on this stuff. They work out, they discipline, they they practice, they oh, and, and in an extremely competitive environment they bust their butts to get to where they are where they are. Would I love to be earning multi-million dollar checks? Sure. Wouldn't that be great? We'd all love to do that. But how many of you would be willing to do what these guys do to get it? I gotta be honest not me. I would hate to do what these guys... I mean, I love them. I appreciate them. A lot of guys... uh, We have a lot of professional athletes that come to this church. That's great. It's fabulous. You know, I respect them and and for what they do. But man, they didn't just get this handed to them. They worked for it. Um, I have people come to me, you know. They'll hear me play the piano or something. Oh, man, I I wish I could play like that. I, I just wish I could play like that. Well, unless you really have some hindrances along this area, you can play like that. Maybe not exactly like that. Everybody's different. But you could play. The difference is you'd have to work at it. I didn't just sit down one day and just, la, 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 just, oh, this is fun, this is easy. No. Hours and hours of da, 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 while you were out having a good time at the beach and having fun, I was in my basement going, da, 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 da. And then, now today people say, oh, wow, I wish I could play like that. You know, as if it just happened. 
It doesn't just happen. People look at me and say, oh, you, you and Debbie are so lucky. You know, you, your marriage is so good. It's so lucky. I, w- I wish we could have had a marriage like that. Hey, we got the marriage we have for a reason. We work at it. We stick it out. We're, we, we consider ourselves trapped in a room with each other. There's no escape. It's either option one, be miserable, or option two, work it out and be happy. We choose option two. Option one stinks. A lot of people take option one. But we don't allow that. We just work at it. We have the life we have. How? On purpose. And then it comes back, that same thought, into spirituality. Pastor, how did, how did you get to a place of faith? How do you get to where you understand the Bible? How do you get to where you can really know what to do and what God's instruction is in your life? On purpose. Because I've trained myself. Which brings us back to Timothy. Train yourself, he said, to be godly. This stuff just doesn't happen automatically. You've got to work at it. You've got to give yourself to it. And, you know, of course I'm preaching to the choir here because those of you who are even at church on a Wednesday night proves that you are among the small percentage of people in the world who do want to train yourself. So kudos to you. It's fabulous. But most people don't want to train themselves. Most people that come to the church on Sunday morning would all like to be as spiritually blessed as a lot of you that are here tonight. The difference is that you're here tonight and they're not. You're the ones who study the Bible, who pray, who take that extra effort, who get involved, who volunteer and serve. And there are all those other ones who look in saying, gee, I I wish I could be like that. Oh, I I wish my life would be successful like that. I, I wish, you know, I could have that kind of faith. It's not about wishing. It's about making an intentional effort. You know what? I'm going to get there and I'm going to work at it. I'm going to train myself. Training means discipline. And whether that discipline is lifting weights, uh, eating right and running hard, or that discipline is practicing music over and over and over again. I use the phrase, practice till you puke. That's how you get good. If if, if that's your discipline, or whether it's a spiritual discipline that requires reading the Bible, studying the scriptures, taking time to pray, taking time to reflect on spiritual things, making sure you're in services, encouraging one another, getting uh, close to people that can hold you accountable uh, in your faith. All of these things are spiritual disciplines that allow you to train yourself to be godly and train yourself to succeed. I promise you, you cannot succeed by accident. Okay, And even when you hear about people who won the lottery or this and you think, well, gee, they were lucky. Man, most of them, a few years later, are broke anyway. I'm, I'm telling you, success comes on purpose. Even people who uh, uh, have made a lot of money uh, and then their kids inherited. They usually say by the third generation, that third generation are the ones that just... They blow the whole wad. They don't know how... They don't have the discipline. They were given this great amount of wealth and and they just frittered it away because why they don't have the discipline without these things come are maintained our 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 growth because of discipline in your life and if you want to succeed as a believer in Jesus Christ what Paul is writing to this young man is saying man 
Train yourself. Get the disciplines in you. If you'll do this, you will succeed. It just doesn't happen by itself. Okay, moving on. Uh, He says, for physical training is of some value, what I was just talking about. But godliness has value for all things. What What he's saying here is, you know, some of these guys would train themselves physically, man. That's great, but train yourself spiritually. It has much more value. Um, so, godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. What is he saying? Not only will godliness benefit you here and now with a, a more blessed life, better relationships, healthier children, uh, a, a more financial success in your life, but of course, for life to come, for eternity. So, I mean, if there's anything what he's trying to lay out here, if there's anything you should train yourself for, discipline yourself for, it's in spiritual things. Not that you can't also train yourself physically if you're an athlete or uh, discipline like for music or arts if you're a musician or uh, for business, whatever. You, You can do those things. But above all things, make sure that you don't neglect training yourself the disciplines for spiritual things. Your life will be better off now and certainly for eternity. Which reminds us of, of the question Jesus asked people. He said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You can have a fabulous life today. You die and go to hell. What, per, what good does that do? You can have everything and you lose out with God in the end. So clearly, of all the disciplines in life, of all the things that are important to focus on, spiritual things, are the things you should be training yourself and disciplining yourself in above all else. Paul goes on, he says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive. This is what we're working for. This is what it's all about. That we have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all men and especially of those who believe. Now, that sounds a little odd. Let me me take a shot at this. He says... God is the Savior of all men. Jesus is the Savior of all men. And especially of those who believe. Um, Some people have twisted this saying that, well see, the Bible says he's the Savior of all men. In other words, everybody's going to be saved. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to preach and teach. Everybody's going to be saved in the end. That's what Right here it says, he's the Savior of all men. No, 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 no. Don't take, you can't just take one or two phrases that Paul might have written. Some of them are hard to understand anyway. And create some doctrine that erases and negates the rest of the Bible. That makes no sense. Clearly, not everyone is going to be saved. Jesus clearly taught, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many will go that way. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. I don't think any of us really have a revelation of just how broad the road to hell is and how many people are going there and how few are the ones who are going to make it. I think if we really had a vision and a revelation of that, it would trouble us greatly. Um, You know, this idea that it doesn't really matter, God loves everybody, everybody's going to make it in the end is not based in truth, certainly contrary to what Jesus said. When it says that Jesus is the Savior of all men, it's like John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the world. 
It's all paid in full. It's a done deal. In that respect, it is true. But men have to turn from their sins and put their faith in Christ to receive that. Just because um, the, the way has been paid, if you don't take advantage of that payment, you're going to wind up paying it for, for yourself. And you don't want to go there. So while he is the savior of all, it's not only the, it's, it only really belongs to those who believe, who reach out and say, you know what, I can't do this on my own. Uh, uh, I can't take care of my own sins. I'm doomed. I need God in my life. They come to God. They ask God for forgiveness. They receive the forgiveness that Christ has made possible. They receive the payment that he paid for for the entire world. Uh, and then they're, they're born again and, and they walk in faith. And this is, uh, uh, these are those who will make it uh, into the kingdom of God. Not just because Jesus died for the sins of the world. Everybody is sadly not going to make it. And, and boy, how sad it is going to be someday on judgment day. When people realize that all of their sins, all of their debts... All of that has been fully paid, but they never took advantage of it. That is going to be the heartbreak on Judgment Day. So, thank God he has died for the sins of the world. He is the Savior of all men. But only those who believe truly get to experience this wonderful salvation and this grace that we have in Christ. God bless you. We will pick it up again at this point next week and continue to look at First Timothy and, and, and grow in our faith and our understanding of the scriptures and the word of God. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.